This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. The iconic loner antihero, Jack Reacher, has made thriller writer Lee Child an internationally renowned author. Child's debut novel, Killing Floor, the first of the 23 Jack Reacher books, won both the Anthony and the Barry Awards for Best First Mystery. The ninth novel in the series, The Enemy, won both the Barry and the Nero Awards for Best Novel and became a film starring Tom Cruise. I interviewed Lee about the latest book in the series, Past Tense, in which a turn in the road takes Jack to his long-deceased father's hometown, where the ghosts of his past aren't necessarily dead and buried. In other Jack Reacher novels, uh, Reacher's alienation, his rootlessness, is what keeps him moving so nomadically. Um, In past tense, by happenstance, Reacher realizes he's closer, he's close enough to where his father was born and raised to actually take a look at the place. How did, how did this particular plot come to you? Well, that is, uh, that's a very first question. That's a very hard question because I really never know how any plot comes to me. I am the extreme example of a panther in as much as I have no idea at all what the book is going to be about or what the plot is going to be or anything like that. I just start it and hope that then somehow it sets in motion a chain of thought that then will produce a decent story. And this one, uh, you know, haven't done it. This is number 23, I think, in the series. And having done so many, I, I sort of have learned to trust that process. So I just wrote the opening uh, paragraph, really, which was really just a paragraph about Reach's rootlessness, as you said. Right. Uh, you know, he's, he's clearly just got a lot of time to kill and no particular place to go. So the first paragraph was really supposed to launch some kind of journey or trip or whatever. Uh, but I... Then when I reread the first paragraph after I'd written it, I realized that I used a lot of ornithological imagery about, you know, Richard leaving the Northeast at the end of the summer, planning to head south like a migration. And I, I then illustrated that with, uh, you know, bird migration. And then I thought, well, why have I done that? You know, what is, what is the subliminal uh, content of that paragraph, and it was clearly about his father, because in previous books, his father has been almost unmentioned, very, very, um, very, very little mention of his father, partly because I wanted to get away from that old thing where, you know, there's a tough guy. Why is he a tough guy? Because his dad was a tough guy or whatever. You know, that's what usually happens. And in the recent books earlier on, I spent much more time on his mother. Uh, I set it up so that the character of Richard being a tough, uncompromising guy who does the right thing is really inherited from his mother. We covered that a couple of times. And so the father is largely unexplained apart from one mention in a short story that gives his, his name, Stan, and uh, says he's from Laconia, New Hampshire. 
And I just I chose Laconia simply because it sounds like laconic, which is <laughs> sort of reach a family characteristic. Right. So I had that had that to deal with, and then in another book, a brief mention of his father, you know, a tough marine officer, uh, stone cold killer, but a bird watcher, uh, because I wanted to try and characterize the guy at that time as, as being tough, but also somewhat tender. And so when I read the, reread the first paragraph of Past Tense and it had um, the ornithological imagery in it, I thought, okay, maybe this book is going to be more about his father. And so it just really developed from, from there. So I can't really say I have an idea to do it. I never have an idea. I just start in the book, whatever is on my mind or whatever, through whatever chain of subliminal connections, that's the story that comes out. Oh, I love the way his story almost was sort of paralleled his father's. I mean, there was a couple of deja vu moments there. His father did uh, something that immediately had, he had to leave town for. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Reacher also has an, <laughs> an altercation which yeah. he has to leave town for too. <laughs> yeah, I guess the message of the book is that he inherited more from his father than perhaps he realizes. <laughs> One place I do want to go with you is um, the old family homestead, I should say. Um, I know that he, as he's trying to figure out where and how his father lived, he ends up in a, what used to be a town called Ryan Town. And um, mm-hmm. one thing that got me, and this is something that I think you do very well, is how his approach, Reacher's approach to aggression, really is very coldly analytical. I mean, you, you actually allow the reader to see the cogs that turn in his head. Uh, I, I loved, uh, you know, a perfect example of this was uh, when he's standing among the old ruins of Ryan Town and um, all of a sudden he's, uh, he runs into or he's surrounded by the man who actually owns the land and he's already had an altercation with it and this time this guy has a cr- his crew around him. <laughs> And uh, you do a countdown by yards of what Reacher is thinking uh, as he sees what he's up against in the, it could be fatal. Walk us through your logistics on fight scenes, because there were a couple of really wonderful, uh, wonderful altercations in this book. Well, I think it's, uh, uh, to a certain extent, it is uh, a technique that is, borrowed from uh, movies and, and, and television in particular, I think, where you you do the slow parts fast and the fast parts slow um, because obviously the tension is mounting, the emotional stakes are higher, the physical fear is higher as two people approach each other. So my, my technique is always to slow that right down almost into a slow motion type of thing, right. which is... Um, Something that in the visual arts we are extremely accustomed to because it happens all the time. I mean, if you ever watch a a nature film or anything like that where uh, waves are breaking on the shore, you know, let's say there's an angry sea and a rocky shore, the wave comes in and breaks. At that point, the, uh, the production always goes into slow motion because the wave comes in, smash, and then the, the explosion of the wave is in slow motion. Um, because we, you know, we want to savor that very transient moment. And in real time, it's over really quickly. 
And the same is true, really, realistically, of violence. It's, it's over very, very quickly. Um, and so you've got to slow down the narrative as you get into it in order to heighten the stakes and really milk the moment. Uh, and people have, anecdotally, people love Reach's thinking. You know, they love to think along with him. And so uh, it's something that I know people are going to enjoy. And it's also something that the analytical part of him can kind of give you two for the price of one or even three for the price of one. When it gets into those tense situations, you, you can have Reach's thinking. It could It could go X. It could go Y. It could go Z. Right. And so you've had kind of three scenarios laid out, all of which are exciting. And so then you get into the one that actually transpires. And in a way, you've added value there. You know, you've been three exciting scenarios instead of one. Right. In my mind, um, you're one of the masters of tension. And in this particular story, you know, you've sort of got, uh, you know, your plot is a two-headed snake in a way. I mean, you've got Reacher's own, you know, search of of his path. And then you've got this, you know, young Canadian couple, you know, Patty and Shorty, and uh, they end up in a in a very strange, you know, motor inn that, you know, would give the Bates Motel a run for its money, but in a different way. Um, so, but then you you kind of obviously bring it all together. I uh, wanted to tell you that I love the way that these victims, uh, they play a role in their own survival. But you also, you know, you also allow Reacher to even the score. Um, so they're not really the B story. It's almost like an A and an A, you know, A.1 story in my mind, the way you laid it out. Yeah, mine too. I mean, I like I said, I had I had no plan or concept of of what would happen. So it wasn't like I had an outline where they were going to do this, that, and the other, and then Reacher was going to come along. I, I just didn't know how it was going to turn out. And I think the initial motivation for that Caddy and Shorty part was where it mentions Maine in the first paragraph. Um, for some reason, that sort of popped Stephen King into my head, right? And I thought, can I? can I do a sort of Stephen King type of strand um, where we get something that is much more Stephen Kingish than what I usually do? So I had the idea of these Canadians and uh, I thought, yeah, great. Okay. They can, they can get trapped in some sinister motel and then we'll see what happens. Uh, but they kind of took over the story. I mean, you're quite right that it's not really an A role and a B roll. It's, it's kind of, if anything, Reacher is the B roll. Um, Reacher is doing mostly uh, very unexciting stuff for most of the book. I mean, you know, he's in city offices, he's doing this or that. Uh, there's, not, there's nothing very urgent going on for him. Um, but the reader kind of knows that Reacher is obviously going to show up and help them out. But the tension is is when, you know, when is he going to show up? And patterns should be do more and more on their own. And I was really happy with the way that came out. They did kind of meet the challenge. You know, they rose to the challenge and were pretty resourceful and did pretty well, especially Shorty. You know, he was, he, he was a bit thick and, uh, <laughs> you know, Patty is a little bit kind of patronizing about him, but he came through in the end. But they just, uh, you know, they just did what they did. I, I had no real plan to keep them going so long, but they almost make it to safety all by themselves. And I was kind of pleased with that in the end. 
Yeah. And I'm, uh, you know, I think a lot of times, um, readers anticipate or even authors will, you know, well, I've got to write my hero in this way because he's got to save the day or whatever. But the way you did it, it was almost, um, it was a perfect pairing because Reacher has, has a reason to be there. He has a reason to do what he does. And he's just that kind of guy, but they had to have the survival instincts that you wrote into them. Otherwise, oh my God, it would have been a friggin' you know, slaughter, shall we say? Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't have gone anywhere unless they'd done something for themselves. And, uh, and I think, yeah, you know, in a way, Rich is pretty respectful of that and, and quite appreciative of it. They don't really need that much from him. Um, but he, he's there and... I think the people that know the series, they're going to really appreciate that. But if there are people that come to this book first in the series, um, I'm not quite sure how they're going to, how they're going to picture Reach's involvement. Maybe, maybe they're going to think he, he should have been earlier in that conventional hero sense. But I'm hoping that they let Patty and Shorty do their thing and, and, and appreciate that just as much. Right, right. Um, well, bravo to, to that. I, uh, I, I appreciated it as both a writer and a reader. So, well, thank you. Um, I know that you kind of started your writing career from what I've read in a, in a, what I call a very Patty Chayefsky moment <laughs> in your life. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of network, you know, um, I know that, that, you know, I'd read somewhere that, that you were a television producer and somehow parted ways with, with your production house and, and kind of said, you know, Hey, I got to make a living for my family. I'm not saying that that's what, you know, Howard Beale did, <laughs> but in, in essence, uh-huh. it's, you had sort of a ball to the wall kind of moment about that. And I think that's, uh, that's important for other writers to know about because there's always this sitting on the fence. I'm sure you've seen it a lot in, in our profession where people kind of sit on the fence about their career in writing and, um, you know, talk about your own process about getting quote unquote off the fence. If you were ever on the fence to begin with, maybe you were just a natural and just blah, went for it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's so interesting to me that I, I kind of miss what practically everybody else I talk to has, which is that kind of desire to be a writer that maybe has been there for a very long time. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, claim that they always knew they were going to be a writer and they have, uh, you know, all composition books full of four page novels from when they were seven years old and so on. <laughs> And they seem to have had an image in their mind of what a writer is, and, and that is what they want to achieve. That is the place they want to arrive at. Um, but for me, it was uh, it was not like that at all. I mean, I was totally happy being a reader. I just love reading. Uh, I would so much like to spend all the time that I spend writing. I would actually prefer to be reading somebody else. Uh, I'm basically a reader, and I had a. a job that was a lot of fun and it was a really satisfying job and it uh, gave me plenty of time off actually for my family and for reading and for hobbies and stuff it was just wonderful but then I was fired and so what I was what was I going to do next and so I kind of backed into writing as much as it was a simple equation really I love reading I've read uh, tens of thousands of books why don't I try writing one 
um, it was kind of backing into it in that direction rather than a lifetime aspiration. So when it came to it, I think without any of the uh, preciousness or inhibition or whatever that I see other people suffering from, um, it was, you know, just get it done, write the book, get it done, get it sold, write the next one. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think that the desperation, and you know, I was broke. I was uh, out of work and broke. So the desperation was a huge factor, and it, it makes you take it 120% seriously. And it, it makes you very ruthless with yourself, you know, about the goal is to make a living. Um, the goal is to put food on the table. And if, you, if that is fo- foremost in your mind, then you don't get all cross about editors and this and that. You just do it in, in order to get paid. I think that the problem with being a writer is that you, you're in the very strange position of having to believe several different things simultaneously, but you have to believe them all 100%. It's not that you can split it 50-50 or whatever. You have to believe everything 100%. Yes, it is a great job. It's a craft. It's an art. It's a joy. It's part of a long and honorable tradition that stretches back centuries. It's all of those good things, but it's also a job and a business, and you've got to take it 100% seriously in that aspect too. And I think a lot of people find the conflict there. Um, they, they feel commercial pressure to alter what they're doing or whatever, but you've got to find a way of threading that needle for yourself. You've got to take both parts of the equation completely seriously. Uh, beautiful metaphor. Uh, also, um, your your approach is very Dickensian, and I don't mean that <laughs> in the alms for the poor way. I mean that in his, you know, Charles Dickens's own approach to writing, uh, in my mind, anyway. Yeah, I like I like Dickens. I especially, you know, Dickens was a very popular writer in the middle of the nineteenth century, and then there was a very quick backlash against him. Uh, you know, within the decade, he was regarded as as just a hack. Uh, but then there was a second revision pretty quickly where, uh, again, he was regarded as a great writer. And Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, wrote a biography of him in 1900 where he tried to thrash out this argument. And um, and he, he had a line in that biography that, that really stayed with me. Um, it, Chesterton was trying to make the argument that Dickens was not a hack who was just writing down to the audience. Um, he, he said Dickens did not write what the audience wanted. Dickens wanted what the audience wanted. Right. And I think that is a, is a very good point that uh, success in writing is really about uh, does, does what you want to write, is that something that other people want to read? Are you on that same wavelength? And I think probably my greatest strength as a writer is that I'm a completely normal person in every possible way, except I can write. And so that the completely normal people in the world, of which there are, of course, billions, they're, they're ready for it. You know, they, they want to read another normal person. And so I think that's the, you know, my, the key to my success is I happen to have a facility for writing, but otherwise I'm a completely standard person. So whatever interests me interests other people too. Right, right. Um, good. Well, then that brings me to my last question. And I'm just going to flip what you just said on, on its head 
um, as you as you pointed out, this is the the twenty third book in the in the Jack Reacher series. Um, will there ever be a time in which you know that you think, "Hey, I've done what I can with him. It's time to move on to another story or another hero uh, and his journey." How do you feel about that? Because I know, you know, we who write series you know, sometimes that's in the back of our heads, but we enjoy what we enjoy living with this person. So why do we want to move on? It's like kicking out, you know, kicking a friend to the curb. So what's your feelings on that? Oh, it's a very, it's a tough, it's a tough issue to work out. I mean, back when I worked in television, I had a friend who was an actor and as a, a young actor, uh, 19 years old, um, this is way long ago, he had um, he'd gotten a role in a soap opera, and he stayed in that role for his entire career. Wow. Um, it, it is now. Let me work it out. It is now. It's got to be almost sixty years, fifty uh, some years. That soap opera has been running. Coronation Street. <laughs> what are we talking about? Cor- Coronation Street. <laughs> yeah, yes. Coronation Street. Yeah. A guy called. A guy called Bill Roach, who plays, uh, who uh, I can't remember the name of his character now, but uh, he's played this one character his entire career. And looking at that, you know, other actors that I know, of course, you know, they're out of work a lot of the time. They they do this, they do that. They're all over the place. They're, they're in and out of all kinds of different things, which is far more kind of what you think of an actor doing. And the idea of an actor doing the same role for his entire life from a 19-year-old until he dies is uh, seems weird. And I get a little bit of that feeling about writing a series. I mean, it is fundamentally absurd to sit down and write 20-plus uh, books about the same guy. And so I am always a little bit conscious of the absurdity of it. And I'm very conscious of, uh, because I've got an entirely showbiz background, you've, you want to be, you want to get out in time. You know, you don't want to be the embarrassing person who sticks around a year too long. Uh, you know, the same thing in athletics and sports and so on. You don't want to be the guy who sticks around one season too long and has a miserable last year. Uh, so... To a certain extent, yeah, it's on my mind. It's a bit odd to be doing the same thing over and over again for many years. And I would, I would, I would sort of forego um, the last couple of books if then people would look back on the series with with fonder memories. You know, like yeah, wow, that was a great series, rather than let it fizzle out disappointingly and people remember that. The, the sort of last couple of lousy books is the thing they remember. So I think it is a, something that's on my mind. Pick your time to stop doing it. But if, if I did stop doing it, I wouldn't write something else. I wouldn't do anything else. I would just um, do nothing, you know, retire. Because uh, what people never remember about me in America is I come from Europe. I have no work ethic. The whole <laughs> point is to <laughs> work for a little bit and then retire. And so, yeah, it's on my mind. Well, you know what? I want you to keep writing, so <laughs> keep it going. Yeah, well, you know, that's nice to hear. And, it, you know, that's literally 50% of the equation right there. That If the reader wants more, then fine. Obviously, I'm doing okay. If I, get, if I got indifference from the reader, then I would think, okay, yeah, now it's probably time to hang it up. Right, right. Well, 
let me let me you know I want to give you your your Sally Field moment. Uh, we want you, really, really want you. So I hope you. I hope Jack Reacher <laughs> keeps making mayhem wherever he may land. Well, he has a hard job avoiding it. So yeah, I'm sure he will. <laughs> Past tense. The twenty third novel in Lee Child's Jack Reacher series is in bookstores everywhere. This is Josie Brown with author provocateur. <laughs>